buildings are responsible for nearly 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And we cannot slow climate change if we don't decarbonize the built environment. But what steps will take us there and how quickly can we do it? This is the greatest design challenge that we've ever faced. You know, we really need to fix this problem and we need to fix it quickly. I'm Greg Mosbach and a warm welcome to the Patcast, the podcast from Patrizia, the leading investment manager and partner in global real assets. In this podcast series, we offer you insights on a range of hot topics from the real assets industry, from important sector trends to key business developments and strategic decisions. In this edition, we're finding out about the big and small changes we need to make to decarbonize real assets. It can't just be greenwashing, it can't just be marketing spin. We really need to now invest in our properties and our real assets. That's Ben Lonsdale, Director of Fund Management at Patrizia. He joins our panel alongside Georgia Elliott-Smith, MD of Sustainability Consultancy Element 4, who you heard from at the beginning. We're also joined by Konrad Hedemann, European ESG Manager at Patrizia. I think all real estate investors are signalizing that you need to do something when it comes to decarbonization, but I think not all are knowing yet how to do that. The World Green Building Council says every building on the planet must be net zero carbon by 2050 to keep global warming below 2 degrees Celsius. They say it's achievable, but not without rapid and collective action. The question is, are we seeing that kind of action? So, just how serious are the impacts of the built environment on climate change? Here's Georgia. We know globally 40% approximately, give or take a couple of percent here or there, is around the contribution in each country of the built environment. So it's significant. It's actually, it's huge in terms of its impact. Obviously, a large part of that is residential property, but large portfolio holders commercially and industrially also have a huge part to play in that. Thanks, Georgia. And in sort of, how should we imagine carbon emissions and the built environment? Is it just the energy that the buildings consume or does it go much further than that? Carbon emissions is a, it's a huge story, really. We use carbon as a proxy term. Really, what we're talking about is greenhouse gases. So in their operation, there are multiple greenhouse gases that are used operationally for buildings, but also the embodied carbon, which is contained within the materials that are used to construct and refurbish those buildings and furnish them. Obviously, buildings go through multiple refurbishments during their lifetime. And I think fit out and retrofit is a an area that we've not really looked at in terms of its embodied carbon over the life of built assets. And then, you know, the, all of the associated emissions as well. So things like logistics, waste movements, you know, demolition, and all of the tenant, occupier and user emissions that are associated with those buildings. So really, operational carbon emissions is the tip of the iceberg, you know, increasing with a uh, increasingly volatile climate, we've got a lot more refrigeration. So air conditioning units going into buildings, and they have a huge impact, the gases contained within those units can be very destructive on the climate too. So yeah, it's uh, once you start picking at the seams, you find that this whole thing becomes really enormous, uh, quite a challenging problem. I mean, you just mentioned, obviously, climate change and the fact that we are 
now seeing climate change related events such as obviously changes in weather patterns we are seeing flooding we are seeing forest fires or bushfires depending on where you live what is that all of that going to do to the built environment in terms of you know climate change risk yeah we're going to see huge quantities of buildings become practically uninhabitable you know, we're going to see with heat waves, certainly this is going to be causing problems for people. We're also going to be seeing extreme rainfall, flooding events and so on. And we've seen, you know, in the UK, as I say, where I live, huge floods in central London, even where you see cars floating down the road uh, last winter. We've also seen over the summer, you know, sewage, raw sewage being pumped out into the sea. Well, that's because of these stormwater events. And the built environment has a huge part to play in that. You know, we've concreted and tarmacked over huge amounts of land, which would naturally soak away the water slowly. So all of these things things are linked to climate change. And we're starting now to see, particularly in the West, you know, these things in developing nations and in the global South have been a reality for quite some time. But we're now seeing this creeping into the global North and major cities like London and Paris. Decarbonisation is clearly then a word that's used quite a bit to denote the fact that we have to reduce greenhouse gases all across the world. Clearly, the built environment is just one industrial sector. But when we look at the term decarbonisation, what what do we understand by that term commonly, particularly for the built environment? For the real estate sector, we're following the energy hierarchy, and that's how we will achieve net zero. And the first phase of that is to significantly improve the energy efficiency of our buildings and our infrastructure. So using a lot less energy, using much better efficient material, uh, machinery and equipment, and then hopefully that will lead to a reduction in demand. So that's the first priority. The second priority is the type of energy that we consume. So we can either generate that electricity ourselves through installing solar panels or wind turbines or other renewable technologies on our buildings. And when we look at maybe um, the needs of our tenants, clearly they also have very, very clear needs. If we take, for example, you know, a logistics operator and they are the tenants at our logistics warehouses, clearly they too are under pressure to decarbonize. Ben, can you give us some examples of what a typical logistics tenant would be looking for from an asset manager, investment manager? for example, like Patrizia, to decarbonise? We've got some real examples of working with our tenants who also have net zero carbon strategies in place. So this isn't something that we as asset owners are doing independently. Major corporates are also adopting net zero and therefore we are working together to achieve net zero for the whole building, not just for the bits that we control or the bits that they control. And there's a good example within our Patrizia portfolio whereby uh, we've worked with the tenant to install solar panels on the roof of the building, and that's been driven both by the tenant and landlord. And then we're investigating ways to improve the building jointly together. So changing lighting, changing machinery and equipment together, installing car charging points for their vehicles, for example. So there are plenty of opportunities where the tenant and landlord are completely aligned on achieving the same target. And it's about collaboration rather than it just being the landlord doing this independently. Conrad, you're fairly new to Patrizia and obviously on day one you found out that overall the corporate target of Patrizia is obviously to decarbonize the corporate operations of Patrizia by 2040 at the latest and do the same 
for the assets in real estate held by Patrizia. I mean, when you heard that target, did you think, my goodness, you know, what have I let myself in for? Or did you think, actually, this is quite achievable, realistic? Well, compared to our peers, I think it's quite ambitious, which I think is quite good. Uh, we need to step up, I think, the whole real estate industry to really bring decarbonization as a priority one, because uh, if we do not do this, then we are faced for more risks when it comes to regulatory requirements, but also climate risks. So we definitely need to step up. And I think the Patrizia ambitions that are out there are really ambitious, but also needed uh, for the real estate sector. What is what is the overall mood in our industry sector? Some are a bit overwhelmed on really how to set up a strategy on how to identify high impact buildings. So buildings that are exceeding the, the climate pathways. And I think that's what needed a standardized approach among the real estate industry with clear definitions on how to really see ESG or how to define ESG and then set up a strategy. I think that is currently differs quite differently from real estate investors. I think the institutional investors are quite far when it comes to their ESG strategies and specifically insurance companies. Ben briefly touched on one example of decarbonization there in terms of the logistics assets. But there are a multitude of areas that need to be addressed if we're going to decarbonize, from low-hanging fruit and low-cost solutions to more wide-scale changes. So what is Patrizia's strategy? I think the first phase of applying a net zero carbon strategy is actually more data and analysis based. So really understanding the portfolio in terms of the carbon footprint of the assets in that portfolio, uh, how energy efficient are the buildings. And that's really the first phase to prioritize what you then do next. Which assets do you need to work on first? Which are going to cause you the most problems in terms of physical risk or stranding risk? And by doing that portfolio analysis using tools like CREM, which is effectively um, analyzing where your property sits today against the decarbonization pathway required to meet net zero, that's really an essential first phase to then say, okay, this asset, whether it's an office or logistics or residential, this asset needs attention first. We then look to instruct you know, ESG consultants to really understand what is um, causing this energy inefficiency, what is causing this high carbon footprint in the building. And then they recommend, okay, you need to improve the machinery equipment by 2030, you need to install solar panels by 2035, you need to change the behavior of the tenants uh, immediately. And all of these things add up to an improvement in the decarbonization pathway of that asset. And that will guide when we spend money, which assets we should do first, then apply that to the rest of the portfolio. So we've got plenty of examples of that within Patrizia, where we're already doing that analysis. And that's then flowing through into asset-specific decarbonization plans. So let me, that's a nice segue to turn this over to Georgia, because you did <laughs> mention the work of the consultant, uh, yeah. Ben. And uh, here's the question to you, Georgia. When you, you know, get called in by a big investment manager with huge amount of uh, assets, some of the things that you'll be first focusing on are probably the quick wins, right, Georgia, to sort of to drive a difference. So how yeah. do you actually go about identifying the low-hanging fruit and, you know, give us some examples of that? You have to prioritise. You can't do everything at once. You know, you've got to start now and you've got to start acting. So let's get all of these together, work out which are the trickiest propositions, which are the ones that we can sort very quickly. And yeah, the, the creme curve is amazing. 
we take a look at buildings and once we've identified those priority buildings, we do know from our experience on hundreds of properties that pretty much universally around 20% of energy can be cut through relatively straightforward no-cost interventions or low to no-cost interventions. So things like, you know, streamlining your building management system, um, making sure that you don't have plant running when it's not required, you know, some fairly simple behavioural interventions and making sure that your facilities management team, your building managers are really on the ball with various energy efficiency techniques. And then, you know, we we often find that once kit has been installed in a building and the designed construction team has moved on, it's just not running efficiently. So there's an awful lot that we can do with just streamlining what you've already got to realise efficiencies. And then beyond that, as Ben described, so so what we do is we will take a look at portfolio level, as I say, prioritise key buildings. We want to make sure that for our clients like Patrizia, that you're spending your money on the most effective measures that you can. So you're not wasting time, you're not wasting money, that all that money is going into the most effective measures possible at this point in time with the technology available. And so we create a model of each building, a computer model of each building, because what we want to discover is what is the absolute upper limit of what can be achieved in this particular building? Because, you know, with every building, there is an upper limit. There's going to be a point at which you just keep throwing money at it and it goes into a black hole. And so we want to find out what is the best package of measures for this building that's going to help you achieve the best decarbonisation and certainly decarbonisation that's in line with the Paris Agreement, which is our 1.5 degrees trajectory. And so really practical, practical measures that says, right, here's what you have to do this year. Here's what you have to do next year. Here's what you have to do over the next five years to get you to that position and to make sure that you are keeping this building relevant, you're keeping it low carbon and that you've got a pathway to decarbonize over time. How do you then go about bringing about, you know, behavioral change, for example, in a multifamily house you know, with 40 or 50 different uh, apartments. How, how, how do you do that? Well, first of all, education. You know, I think particularly at the moment with the cost of energy going up exponentially, you know, people are really being hit in the pocket. I mean, the property has to be well designed in the first place. You know, it has to be well designed so that they have, people have intuitive systems. They know how to use those systems. They work, you know, and they're well designed, sized for that building. But then beyond that, education, you know, I think certainly within commercial buildings, and then again, maybe in rental properties as well, or hospitality type properties, there is a sense of learned helplessness around facilities. You know, people tend not to touch the lights or touch the blinds and things like that. You know, and there's, we need to sort of teach people how to engage and how to influence the space that they're in, what they can and cannot touch. And, you know, that goes for facilities managers as well. You know, tech is moving on very quickly. And I think building management systems are not the same from one building to another. And we really need to um, get people much more engaged in tweaking, playing with their buildings, working out how they can be optimised. But I do feel like you know, we're being hit in the pocket at the moment. And that's, I think, the primary driver now is really, it's much sharper attention on that now to try and cut costs, which is great. I can definitely support the the answer that Georgia just gave. Um, that's definitely education, same as property management, same as facility management, but also with the tenants who are responsible for 80% of the energy consumption within a building. So we can't do everything uh, by ourselves. So from landlord side, we definitely need to 
engagement from the tenants, from property managers, and also from facility managers. What real estate investors are currently doing, and we're also doing that, is to provide guidelines, to provide workshops on education, incentivizing the tenants, etc. So trying to set up strategies to really speak to the tenants. That's what's been missing among real estate investors, currently only focusing on the landlord side. But of course, actually, the biggest part of decarbonizing build environment is engaging with the tenants, speaking to the tenants, and giving them an awareness of sustainability. And we're also um, increasingly looking to include green lease clauses. So these clauses give us some control as a landlord to say, tenant, please can you, you know, if you're going to make a improve the fit out of the building, that you consider these materials and the operation of your building, please think about sustainability issues at all time. Please share data with us. So that is one way that the landlord can get some control over the way that the building is operated. But I think tenant engagement is going to be the most effective way. For example, setting up um, for multi-let office buildings, setting up a sustainability forum for the building where each tenant sends a representative to this meeting with the landlord or the property manager. And we can discuss sustainability issues and how should we improve the building together and make it more of a collaboration rather than the landlord forcing the tenant to do something and seeing it as some kind of punishment as opposed to a collaboration to both achieve the same final result. Let's uh, look at the fact that all the real estate that will exist in the year 2050, 80% of that exists already, right? Which is a really important statistic to have out of the back of our minds. So knowing that, it's probably not a case of building from new, building from scratch, but actually making sure that the existing stock is refurbished and retrofitted in such a way that it's future-proof. But what kind of challenges does that sort of bring? It does bring huge challenges because I think that... um we're not really there yet when it comes to embodied carbon calculations. You know, all of this is really embryonic. And although people have been talking about carbon and climate impacts and so on for a long time, really studies in this work in this is pretty, is brand new, really. And so we're trying to work out on buildings with, you know, really forward thinking clients, exactly what does whole life carbon look like? You know, we've we've talked about, about the fact that a building will be refurbished multiple times over its life, but we haven't been great at collecting data on that. And so, you know, furniture, replaceable fittings, fixtures, equipment, you know, ME equipment is a massive embodied carbon to replace in a building. However, the structural elements of a building are so, so important and retaining those is very important if you can. And so now we're starting to look, as I say, at whole life carbon rather than just bits and pieces, like just looking at operational carbon. So all buildings now should, all significant developments should now be looking at whole life carbon assessments. And actually the Mayor of London has now made that mandatory for major developments. Uh, A lot of planning authorities in the UK now require a whole life carbon assessment. But one thing I would say is that with a lot of clients that we're working with on whole life carbon assessments, it's doing the assessment almost after the horse has bolted. We're not there yet in most cases on conducting the carbon assessment first on the options that are being put forward for refurbishment or for build and then designing the buildings based on the findings of the whole life carbon assessment. So that's what we call a dynamic 
whole life carbon assessment rather than just a static one. A static one just tells you what you've designed and what its carbon impact is. A dynamic assessment is where we really ought to be so that we can then look at all the different architectural options and say, right, this is the best bet for you based on carbon. But I think that will come over time as we get more sophisticated. You know, we're just looking for more clients who are, can build that into the design process. And that that leads me to another point, which is that our procurement processes and our design processes for building at the moment are not set up for these studies to necessarily be done at the right time. So quite often the sustainability consultant and these carbon assessments are done quite late into the design work rather than being done right at the very beginning, you know, at at stage zero when we're actually just talking about the concept of the project, that's when we should be starting to devise our sustainability strategy and deciding what are the parameters. What I definitely see within the built environment is that there are limits when it comes to decreasing CO2, but also kilowatt hours. So I think at some point, if we do, for example, other measures that are currently undergoing also within our portfolio, I think there are limits to that economically, but also ecologically. So that's definitely a challenge for the future. And also what I'm a bit concerned about is that uh, investment managers or investments are currently only focusing on top A or B locations. But of course, we also need to decarbonize all the bit environment in D or E locations to fulfill the regulatory requirements, to really decarbonize the assets, to minimize risk, etc. But of course, within those regions, there are also limits when it comes, for example, to rental increases are carrying out refurbishments, so that's definitely a challenge for the future. Let's look to the future now. We're living through a time of economic uncertainty. Energy costs are rising, inflation is spiralling, supply chains are often broken. It's hard to see past today and think long term. So how do we keep our clients engaged in sustainability and especially decarbonisation? I would say that the institutional investors in our funds are one of the key drivers of the adoption of net zero. They've really pushed this forward, probably more than government sector and regulators, to be honest. So they are fully signed up to the challenge. And if anything, they're pushing us harder to achieve our stated objective. So, and it's a long-term strategy, right? So this is a, a target to achieve net zero by 2040. It doesn't mean that everything has to be done tomorrow. So Decisions can be made in the short term. We've got very high inflation that's flowing through into um, building cost inflation. So some projects are becoming too expensive to do right now. But they can be delayed until they become more financially viable. But no, I think our institutional investors are fully behind us and are really pushing us forward uh, to achieve net zero by 2040. I'd be keen to hear from Conrad on the sort of tenant perspective and you know, the economic challenges that everybody's facing, you know. When it comes, for example, to commercial tenants, there's split incentives or landlord-tenant dilemma. So actually, we as a landlord invest in specific ESG measures. However, the tenant is benefiting from it. So that's quite an ongoing discourse with the tenants because they, of course, pay then less energy costs, whereas we have the investment costs. So there needs definitely be a change within the rental contracts or within the regulation. When it comes to residential tenants, it's quite difficult there. For example, if we want to say within the contract that they should use green electricity, um, given a certain situation, uh, electricity prices are increasing, and then adding on top of it green electricity is quite critical. Adding on to what Comrade says there as well, there is, of course, the 
the issue of increased asset value. The carbon performance of the building is linked to its value. And therefore, the investment that the asset owner puts into that building will be realized when they come to sell it because it will result in an increased value. And I think we're just at the start of that now. It's not we're not quite there, but we can definitely see that in the future. There's a clear financial case for investing in net zero. And I think, as George is suggesting, we're not there yet. But I think within the next three to five years, if you have a building which is energy inefficient and has a high carbon footprint, that property will devalue. There'll be increased capex liabilities included against that valuation. And also there'll be a pricing impact because investors don't want to buy that kind of asset in the future. So there's a clear financial case for addressing climate risks, for investing in the properties and protecting our investors from the downside risks of climate change. I mean, there's currently a lot of regulation uh, coming up. For example, in the Netherlands, uh, there are letting restrictions coming into law for next year when it comes to office buildings, but also for residential buildings by 2030. So actually, ten, uh, landlords are obliged to do something uh, for decarbonizing the energy performance or decarbonizing the property, because otherwise they will face liquidity losses. Well, one thing is obviously the regulatory environment, and that's clearly getting tougher and tougher and stricter and stricter. And so it should in order to actually prevent climate change and accelerating. But the question is, should we go way further than legislation? And I'm now looking at you, Georgia, because you are obviously somebody, and not many people know this about you, you're an Extinction Rebellion activist in your spare time when you have a bit of spare time. So should we all be climate change activists, do you think? Yes. <laughs> Very short answer, yes. And the the reason for that is that I think we have to move more quickly. You know, we've known, I started my career in the early 90s. We already knew that climate change was coming. You know, we called it global warming back then. But we've known about it for such a long time and so little has been done. And so all of us know that what we're doing is not enough. We feel very restricted by business as usual. You know, there are certain systems, the way the economy works, the way the industry works that hold us back from being able to do what we would like to do more quickly. And I think the only way to really get around that is to be more activist. Maybe just to round off this discussion, I've heard your thoughts. You know, there's clearly a lot of good things are happening, but yet there are challenges out there and there's a lot that still needs to be done. Quick question to each of the three of you. I mean, how optimistic are you about the future? I'm optimistic that um, for the first time maybe ever, Governments, regulators, investors, lenders and tenants are all pretty much aligned that we need to do something. I guess the, the pessimist in me thinks that it won't be enough and we maybe won't avert the, the worst effects of climate change. But I think for the first time in my working life, I feel like there's some genuine momentum behind doing something. What I'm a bit concerned is about other countries. They are not that far as the European Union, for example. So we really need to work on a worldwide framework on sustainability, understanding of sustainability in order to really achieve our climate targets. Because if we do only this on a European Union basis, then of course we do not achieve the targets. Yeah, finally. I mean, I'm very optimistic. Otherwise, I couldn't do this work. And I do have to say that is peppered sometimes with bad days where I just think, oh, God, we're all doomed. <laughs> but, you know, that you can't 
carry on like that. We've got to put one foot in front of the other. and We've got to fix this problem. You know, this is the greatest design challenge that we've ever faced. You know, we really need to fix this problem and we need to fix it quickly. I think, you know, the, the biggest threat that we have is complacency. And I think it's people expecting other people to move first, is waiting for people to take them along by the hand. You know, we, we all need to step up and we need to be asking the questions and challenging ourselves and each other to do better. Thanks to our guests, Georgia Elliott-Smith, Ben Lonsdale and Conrad Hederman. And thanks for listening. I'm Greg Marsbach and you've been listening to the podcast from Patrizia. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to head over to our website, patrizia.ag, to find out more. Stay safe and healthy until the next time. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.